Well, those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm on staff here. I'm one of the pastors. I mainly work with young adults and all things technology. So um, I don't, I'm not up here as often as some of the other guys, uh, but I'm just thankful you guys took your time today to, to join us and to be with us uh, on this Sunday. Uh, we know that you have uh, tons of opportunities and tons of choices of where you can spend your Sunday mornings, and we feel blessed that you've chosen to be here with us today. So whether you be online or in person, uh, thank you for being with us and thank you for joining with us. So as we look this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20, and uh, the title of the message today is just the Abram's journey to Egypt. And as long as I can remember, as I think back in my life, I had dreamed of going to Ohio State University. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I had friends and family who went there. I loved their sports teams. Greg and I oftentimes get to, to enjoy time together talking about that. And I got my first taste of what it would be like when I was in fifth grade. I got a, a chance to go to a football game in the horseshoe, uh, and the atmosphere was just electric. Uh, Greg can testify to that one as well. And my excitement grew year after year as I got closer to that time to apply. I remember my junior year of high school, I got to go on a campus tour. And I just loved the atmosphere. I loved the, the academics. I loved the sports. It was just a great uh, environment of what I wanted to have from a college experience. Being a sports guy, having a good sports school was a necessity, so that was definitely one check off the box. And as I entered my senior year, I knew my grades were good enough. I knew my test scores were good enough to qualify for an automatic scholarship. So really, it was a no-brainer in my mind. Why would I not be able to go to this dream school of mine? I applied to six different schools, but really only cared about the one. And unlike the other schools I applied to, Ohio State was rolling in missions. What that means is that rather than having a deadline for everybody, it's just as you get your application in, a month later they'll get back to you. And that probably looking back was my downfall because I kind of took that for granted. That next month went by so slowly as I anticipated that letter each day. Each day hoping that letter would come and it would make me a Buckeye. Then that day arrived and I eagerly ripped open the letter. I regret to inform you, blah, 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 blah. I was instantly crushed. And that soon transitioned to frustration and disappointment, ultimately with God. Why, why, God, would you let this happen? Why would you take this dream of mine and crush it? On and on, I questioned this plan for me. And if you're like me, and I'm guessing most of you are, life sometimes hits us in a difficult and unexpected ways. Life throws us a curveball, so to speak, or two, or sometimes ten. Whether we're not getting into college we want to, or not getting the job we were hoping for, family relational struggles, difficult work environments, expensive economies causing bills to pile up, illness or even death of loved ones. When circumstances are seemingly stacked against us, how do we respond? Where do we turn? And I know for me, when I face unexpected twists and turns, and things that don't go the way I'm hoping for, the way I want, I tend to try and solve them myself. God's given me a brain, so I put that brain to use, and I try and figure out what's the best plan at this time. And sometimes out of my own pride, I think, you know what, I got this. I don't need to, I don't need to have God's intervention here. I can just take care of this myself. And other times, probably out of fear, I feel like I'm the only one looking out for myself, so I must do what I need to do and act out of fear and self-preservation. 
the message from our culture around us tells us that really the only person looking out for you is you. And therefore, we have to look out for ourselves because no one else will. We oftentimes can doubt God's promises and we doubt that God can protect us and provide for us, even, or even especially, in the hard circumstances of life. I'm guessing you may do the same, even if it's not consciously. So the question I pose to you this morning is this, how do we trust God in the face of circumstances that don't go our way? We must turn to him, but why? Last week, George spoke on the call of Abram in Genesis 12, and his promise to bless Abram. If you didn't catch that, I really encourage you to check back at that message. Go back and listen to it online at our website, YouTube channel. It really uh, it was a blessing to me, and I hope it was a blessing to you guys as well. This morning, we're going to look at the passage immediately following that in Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. And we're going to get a glimpse, I think more than anything, of, of ourselves as we look through this passage. So turn with me to Genesis 12 in your Bible or on your device or whatever you may have. Genesis 12, verse 10 says, Now there's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. Thank you, Lord, that your word does not return void. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit fills us and works through us and speaks through me, Lord. But I pray that you would speak this morning, that you would, you would be present, that you would have the words that you once said Solidify people's minds, Lord, and the words that are just for me, Lord, I pray that they would be quickly forgotten. We thank you for your time and word this morning, Lord. We thank you for being able to gather freely together and worship together, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have three points for you this morning. It's simply this problem, plan, protection, and provision. So hopefully easy to remember, hopefully easy to take with you. Problem, plan, protection, and provision. So first, their problem. So let's look back at Genesis 12, 10. What's it say? It says that there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So our story begins with Abram and Sarai, his wife, just after the promise of blessing that he received earlier in chapter 12. But before the Abrahamic covenant, where God changes his name and lays out the promise fully in the covenant in chapter 15, which we'll get to in a few weeks. 
He's living a nomadic lifestyle where he travels as he goes with a group of people and animals surviving off what they can. And it's easy to look at the first half of Genesis 12 and see all the positives of how Abram responded in faith to God's call. He picked up and left everything and went. He roamed through the promised land. He built altars in the face of his enemies, essentially. That's a big step of faith. And everything seemingly was going smoothly. Then the first real challenge hit. Famine hit. See, Israel was rain-dependent. It needed rain to survive, for the crops to grow. And a famine in this culture is devastating. It takes away the, the crops, takes away the lives of both animals and people in that process. This is the first sign that we see of things not going well for Abram. And in a partial step of faith, Abram went down and sojourned in Egypt. And the reason why I say partial step of faith is because you think about going to Egypt was still further traveling on from where he came from. He could have gone back to Ur where he was born. They were also fertile land with rivers around. But he continued to take a step forward to sojourn down in Egypt, which wasn't rain-dependent because of the flooding of the Nile every year. To sojourn ultimately means to dwell as a stranger. It has the idea of a temporary stay. So he, was, he wasn't giving up fully on the promise that God had given him, that he would give them his land. But he knew he had to go, in his mind, for a season. The reason why I feel like it's only a partial step of faith is because we see in the next verses, Abram's response to this problem is he comes up with his own plan, and he never consults God on even going to Egypt in the first place. And that really brings us to verse 11 with Abram's grand plan. It says in verse 11 and 12, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and my life be spared for your sake. So before entering Egypt, he took the step of faith to go and to sojourn, but before he got there, his doubts and his fears started to arise. He's about to enter Egypt. Egypt this time, estimates show between somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million people. It was the largest kingdom in the world at the time. And so his doubts and fears arise. He's about to enter this foreign land. And Abram gives very specific instructions to his wife when they enter Egypt. Abram knows his wife is very beautiful. At this time, Sarai would have been about 65. We don't exactly know when it says beautiful, whether it was a different standard of beauty back then, or if she just was remarkably beautiful for her age. We don't know. But he instructs his wife to say, hey, tell everybody you're my sister, which technically is only a half, half lie. Technically, Sarai is his half-sister. But you saw in that moment, it was based on his own plan and his own ideas rather than God. And verse 13 tells us why. So that it may go well with me and my life may be spared for you. He devised this plan purely thinking of himself. He realized, hey, if I'm her brother in culture at that time, if someone wanted to marry her, they'd have to come to me and we can negotiate in that process. And so he knew most likely that he could say, hey, if somebody comes to me and tries to negotiate for my sister, 
I can kind of fend them off and kind of say, no, I'm not going to do that, or like, no, the price isn't good enough. And he kind of can bide his time as they're there. But what was his focus? His ultimate was himself. He's concerned about self-preservation. He's concerned about himself. He's not concerned about his wife and what may happen to her. Abram is willing to potentially sacrifice his wife's safety because he's fearful of what may happen to him. He knew this promise that God had just given him. And he's like, let me come up with this plan so that I don't jeopardize this plan God just gave me, this promise God gave to me. That promise that God gave him to provide for him, to protect him, to bless him, make him a father of a great nation. It's either out of his mind or he's thinking that fulfillment must be dependent on him alone. That great plan Abram devised on his own accord and his wife's expense is done without God's input, without consideration for God's promise. And after a great display of faith we saw last week, this passage immediately following shows a lack of faith, really, in the promise that he just received. And that really brings us to our third point where we'll really camp here for a while. Genesis 12, 14, it says, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female serv- servants, female donkeys, and camels. When they entered Egypt, it was just as Abram assumed. Sarai was seen as very beautiful. It wasn't just the husband's thoughts towards his wife, but it really was. He was seen, she was seen as extremely beautiful by many Egyptians. And up to this point, I'm sure the plan was folding exactly how Abram anticipated, thinking, you know what? All right, this is good. I, I have the plan. I'm able to execute it. I'm able to fend off suitors. We're good. What he probably didn't anticipate was that Sarai's beauty was reported to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh himself wanted Sarai. Abram could not refuse the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. Pharaoh had complete authority to do as he pleased, when he pleased. And so she was taken by Pharaoh to be his wife. And take a moment and just put yourself in Sarai's shoes right here. I can imagine the feelings of abandonment and anger towards her husband, who was supposed to look out for her and care for her. The helplessness to change the situation she was entering unknowing if she'll ever see her husband again. I can imagine the, the fears that would rise in her in this moment as well. And in return for Sarah, Abram received a large endowment, sheep, oxen, male, female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. And a special note here is really two animals that you look at this list of animals, you're like, yeah, a bunch of animals, cool. But what we don't realize is that actually there's a couple of significant notes here. One would be the fact there's female donkeys. Female donkeys were known to be far more controllable and also more dependable for riding. And therefore, they really were the ride of choice for the rich as they traveled. Kind of like a modern day, like Lexus or Mercedes type of world. The second note of animal of note is the camels. At this time, camels really had just been domesticated. And so where the female donkeys were for the rich, the camels were for the ultra-rich. They were prestige symbols. They were more like the Ferrari and Lamborghini for comparison. And now Abram had both of them and multiple of them. He was inundated with a life of luxury on his wife's behalf. 
while he bore riches, his wife bore the consequences of Abram's actions. And just as a side note here, we'll get to later in Genesis, one of the things that's probably of note here too that he received, that female servants, one of them was probably Hagar, which we know in a few chapters later where his misstep here of faith led him to riches, his misstep there also led to consequences. And it's most likely here where Hagar enters the picture. So it's interesting to note that Abram's faithless missteps here may have direct, directly provided for his faithless misstep down the road. So the picture set before us is pretty bleak at this point. Sarai is with Pharaoh. Abram is, I'm sure, somewhat torn, living a life of luxury now, but at the same time, knowing his wife is gone. What's going to happen? What happens in this situation? And that brings us to verse 17. It says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took my, her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning her. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So verse 17 is one of those wonderful moments of Scripture the guide intervenes, but the Lord. Reminds me of so many other times in Scripture where it says, but God. And you see God entering a situation that is seemingly against all odds. Despite the circumstances seeming bleak, despite the fact that Abram got himself into this mess, despite Pharaoh being the most powerful man in the world, the Lord acts. The Lord causes plagues to fall on Pharaoh and, his, and on his house. And he knew it was because of Sarai and Abram. We don't know exactly what these plagues were. Uh, many people assume it's probably some sort of skin boil. Uh, we don't know for sure, though. But he knew it was because of Sarai and Abram. Perhaps everyone in his household received these plagues except for Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram in for questioning. The same Hebrew word that he uses here to summon Abram in is the exact same word that God used in the garden to summon Adam. And then Pharaoh proceeds to ask Abram pointed, direct questions. What? Why? Why? Pharaoh asks Abram, what is this you've done? And again, another hearken back to the garden. This is the same words that God says to Eve in Genesis 3. What is, it this, what is this you have done? You see in those three short questions... The Pharaoh demands answers. He seeks his, has anger. Yet you have Abram standing in silence without response. Abram came into Egypt fearing death, and now he stood before Pharaoh, where his dishonesty, uh, dishonesty had ultimately put Pharaoh in a situation of adultery, which throughout the ancient world was known as a great sin. And so he had to be terrified that his fears were now directly potentially coming into play. Pharaoh had every right to now kill Abram. And so the exact fears that Abram had, the plan he devised to avoid this, he's now face to face with anyway. And even in that moment, Abram's lack of response just shows his own guilt, acknowledges his own guilt in that process. And so the irony of Pharaoh, the pagan king, 
calling out Abram, God's chosen holy one, for his lack of morals. The accusations were short, and the sentence even shorter. In the Hebrew, where he says uh, there, now then here is your wife, take her and go. In Hebrew, it's literally four words. Here, wife, take, go. You feel some of the, the anger Pharaoh had. Get out of my presence. Leave. What have you done to me? You see this reality that God ultimately protects them. But you also see Pharaoh's acknowledgement of the fear of this God. So Pharaoh has this rightly placed fear of Abram's God, even as Abram in this story had misplaced his own fear for his own safety. Sarai is now back with Abram, and they're escorted out of the country with all their newfound riches. No thanks to Abram's failed plan in that process, and only thanks to God's provision and protection. The Lord made his promise to Abram and Sarai, and he acted to protect them, even as circumstances looked bleak, even when they acted even against their own best interest there. Even when Abram could not, God acted to protect and provide for Sarai. And Abram leaves on his journey to Egypt with very little of note, but returns with much wealth and his family intact only thanks to the provision and protection of the Lord. And we know that if we look forward in Genesis, that Abram has two other instances where his faith wanes and in fear he again tells the lie that Sarai is his sister, not his wife. So clearly Abram doesn't learn his lesson, even this account. And each time, God provides and protects. Now, oftentimes when we look at Old Testament narratives, we can read through them and read through as the Abrams of the stories as the main character. We can often look at the do's and the don'ts and, and come back to the list of rules, the morality that it provides. We probably could very easily moralize the story Something along the lines of, well, yeah, don't lie, or don't sell your wife. And while that would be good advice, I think it misses the bigger part of the story, it misses the heart of the story, where God wants to draw our hearts out and see the bigger picture, see God's character in the process. So I want to look back at one of the verses George read last week in Genesis 12, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar and he appeared, uh, to the Lord who had appeared to him. And if you notice something a little small in this verse, it says to your offspring. It doesn't say offsprings. It says to your offspring. That offspring is singular. That word is also translated as seed. And we know ultimately that it points to Jesus. Paul says as much in Galatians. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say to into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. As we look at Abram's story, look at multiple other Old Testament stories, Abrams aren't the main characters. God is the main character. God is the hero. Always. God is the hero that rescues Abram despite his lack of faith. God's provision and protection of Abram here is preserving the promise that he made to Abram that he would father a great nation and through his offspring, many blessings. We know that through, the, through Abram's line, we the ultimate provision and protection that God provides, 
God's people in Jesus. Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect God-honoring life that we couldn't, that Abram couldn't, died the death he didn't deserve to die, to pay our penalty for sin, and rose again to offer us right relationship to God, to all to trust in him. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, perhaps today is the day that God has for you to see God as the hero, God as the faithful one to Abram, God as the faithful one to you, who wants to have a relationship with you. But I want, to, I want us to take a moment and challenge us to really think about how does this story, how in this story really we see our story, how in this story we see our doubting, our fears, our selfishness, but also our provision and our protection. This story shows us our need. We, like Abram, often doubt God's willingness and ability to provide and protect us in life circumstances, especially when it gets challenging. We doubt God's willingness to provide the relationships we desire. We doubt God's willingness to, to provide the funds for getting by. We doubt God's care for us when don't, things don't go our way. We doubt God's ability to mend broken relationships. We doubt God's willingness or ability to help us deal with stresses and anxieties of life. We doubt God's ability to help us overcome sins that so often hinder us. We doubt God's care for us when we face illnesses and death. And what do we do in response? Because of those doubts, we act just like Abram did. We act out of fear that we're on our own in these messes of life. We act out of fear that no one else is looking out for us. And we act out of pride because we think we know better. Whatever plans God may have, we think we might know even better than God in that process. But either way, we place our faith in broken cisterns that will never satisfy. And the story reminds us that despite our own actions, the Lord is the faithful one. He's faithful to his promise to provide and protect. He's faithful to his people, as ultimately seen in Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Let us draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need. Where Abram turned to his own devices, we're reminded to draw near to God and turn to him in the face of challenges. God provides grace and mercy in our time of need. And whether we see that protection ultimately and provision ultimately here in this life in a tangible way, which we are not guaranteed, we know that through Jesus, God has provided for our greatest need. He has provided and protected to cover the greatest need we could have. Not only does his death provide for our greatest need, it makes a difference for the here and now as well. Second Corinthians 5 states this. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You notice those words there. If anyone is in Christ. He doesn't just provide and protect for our greatest need in the long run, but he provides us the opportunity to be in Christ now. 
to be empowered to live out our faith, empowered to live a life of faith and trust in our daily lives. It provides us hope. This provides us the ability to respond out of a changed heart, not just one out of morality and duty, but one out of a heart changed to trust God. I believe oftentimes in church, it's easier to think about the do's and don'ts. It's easier if we grow up in church world to think about the rules, and I do this, I don't do this. That's how we kind of get by with God. But God doesn't want just want our brain. He wants our hearts. That can be trickier sometimes. But in stories like this, it's easy to see both the morality, but also if we dig deeper, we can see the heart. So my big idea for today is simply this. Because God is faithful to provide and protect We can trust him in the midst of our doubts and our fears. Because God is faithful to provide and protect, we can trust him in the midst of our doubts and our fears. We all have doubts and fears I talked about before, and we often act upon those in our own ability. It happens in my life, and I believe it happens in your lives as well. And we see it in this passage through Abram's life. I have doubts and fears all the time. I think about as a parent, I'm going to raise my kids well. I fear that I'm not going to do an adequate job. I have fears and doubts whether I can adequately lead as a pastor. It's natural to have fears and doubts as we enter through our lives and circumstances we face. And I can choose to act out of that fear and doubt and come up with my own plan and put it on my own shoulders. Or I can trust God and live a life of faith and trust, empowered by Christ and the Holy Spirit working inside of me. I've heard it said that in any given moment, someone's either entering a storm, in the midst of a storm, or leaving a storm. And everyone you, you run into, that's the case. Without that foundational hope of Jesus, people live in glass houses that are just waiting to shatter as life throws rocks their way. And I say when in that instance, because I guarantee you, life does knock us down. Life does provide challenges. In the world around us, we will face challenges by nature. Bad things will happen. There will be times you feel that God has left you all alone. There will be times where you feel like he's silent. But those are the times God implores us to look to him, to cling to him, to draw near to him. And the good news of the Bible is that God is faithful to meet us there. He's worthy of our trust. He's the only one that's ever worthy of our trust. He implores us to act upon that. And even when we don't, he still is faithful. Second Timothy reminds us, even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. God is faithful by nature. He can't not be faithful. It doesn't always look as we think it should, doesn't mean it's not true. God is faithful. We see it again in Hebrews in chapter 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, through Jesus' blood we have ability to, to meet with God, to relationship with God, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is what gives us confidence to be able to enter. Jesus' confidence gives us the ability to have full access to God. 
as George talked about last week, it's only a child who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. That's the type of access we have. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Those are heart-level responses. It's easy to moralize things, easy to turn it into do's and don'ts, but God wants our heart. For he who promised is faithful. It's the big idea again. Because God is faithful to provide and protect, we can trust him in the midst of our doubts and fears. Worship team, you can head on up. I began this evening with a story of my college acceptance process, and I want to pick up on that one. After that rejection from Ohio State and the, and the tailspin I took after that, the ensuing anger and doubt and fear, the next few months over what I was going to do, I got a call from one of the schools that waitlisted me. I applied to six, I got accepted to two that were both my safety schools, I waitlisted at two that I thought were my kind of easy ones in, and then rejected from two. And I figured maybe that call, that call of coming off the wait list and coming on to acceptance, maybe that's where God wanted me. That school ultimately was JMU, where I went to school, James Madison University, my alma mater. And it was through my time at Crew, I grew my faith in ways I would never have imagined. And part of the irony of this is that through my college application process, JMU was the one school that as I, the, the essay that you had to write was, what's something that made a really big difference in your life? It was the one school I talked about me coming to Christ as the one thing that made the difference in my life. So I got the sense that maybe that's where God wanted me. And it was t- through my time there, I grew my faith. It was through my time there that God changed my career path. It was through my time there that I, was, I met my wife. Looking back, I can safely say that though I had disappointment and frustration and fear and doubts, looking back, I can safely say that I didn't go to get it, not getting into Ohio State was a good thing because God was faithful to provide for me and protect me in the process, even when my best laid plans fell elsewhere. And when I graduated from JMU, I decided to intern then with Crew. Our regional team then thought it was best for me to come here to Baltimore. And then with that came more fears and more doubts, another opportunity to trust. Fear of the unknown, fear of where I'd live, fear of whether I'd like it or not. As I went through that summer between college and joining staff with Crew, those fears bubbled, those fears grew. And as I tried to ignore them and stuff them away in my own, my own devices, after my first staff meeting with my Baltimore crew team, those fears bubbled over and I, I remember thinking, man, what am, I, what am I doing? Why am I leaving everything I know to come here to Baltimore, to a new place where I don't have any friends, I don't have a church, I don't have any relationships? Like, what, what am I doing? I just wanna go back to my alma mater and, and be a JMU. That next day, my church had a young adults meeting and I remember sitting there and the big idea of the message was something along the lines of, um, are you willing to take up your cross no matter the cost? And I remember sitting there, it was like God hit me upside the head. He reminded me that all the costs, all the fears, he was worth it. And put all of my fears and doubts into perspective. God was faithful. That day through a friend of mine who gave this talk, he was faithful to point me back to his, his faithfulness and worthiness enabled me to step into this new place, which eventually led Kylie and I to join staff here in Baltimore, which eventually led Kylie and I here to Grace, which eventually led all along to God knowing what exactly what he's doing. He faithfully walking alongside of us every step of the way.
So just as Abram was on a faith journey learning he could trust God and not doubt him, I continue to learn to trust each and every day when things don't go the way I want them to. As I face each new challenge, I can look back at this example in my life as well as the countless examples we have in Scripture of God's faithfulness, ultimately what he shows in Christ. I can use them to remind my heart to trust and to rest into him and to draw near to him, not out of my own acts and not, act, not out of my own doubts and fears, but in reliance on God wherever he'd take me. So in close, as how would you face hard circumstances differently if you truly trusted in your, in your heart God's faithfulness and trustworthiness? God invites our heart to trust the one who's only, the only one who's ever been truly faithful and worthy and trustworthy. God invites us to attack our doubts by looking back at our life and more importantly looking at scripture so we can see that he is trustworthy and we act upon that not just our doubts and feelings as they may waver away so again reminder my big idea is this because God is faithful to provide and protect we can trust him in the midst of our doubts and fears so let's stand and worship today let's stand and worship our faithful God who provides a firm foundation for our faith and the one who's delivered on his promises countless times again and again ultimately through the blood of Jesus.